Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Scientists at Sea, brought to you by Exeter Marine. Today Ben's going to be talking to Dr Lucy Hawkes. Lucy is a senior lecturer in physiological ecology based in our Stratham campus and they're going to be covering some of her work in Arctic terns, tuna and basking sharks. So here we go, enjoy. Lucy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. How are you doing? Good, thank you very much, Ben. Thank you for having me. You've just come back from being at National Geographic. Um, what were you doing there? So I, um, I, this is really cringy, but I get to say I'm a National Geographic explorer. Um, National Geographic, you probably know from the famous yellow magazines, the TV channel, T-shirts, all the rest of it. But I didn't really realise till a few years ago they have a society which is funded from their kind of commercial endeavour and they give out research grants. And I was at an academic conference and somebody told me about their research grants and I applied for one and I got one. And when you have a research grant from National Geographic, you get to call yourself a National Geographic Explorer, which is brilliant. And they are a really fantastic organisation. I'm so passionate about them. They invite me to loads of things, bits of training, special events. Um, and I've learned quite quickly to say yes to anything and everything they ask me to do. So they've asked me to go on a cruise ship. They asked wow. me to go to Portugal to give a talk. Um, sometimes they sometimes there's hair and makeup. I can't tell you how exciting <laughs> that is as a scientist. That never happens. And uh, last week they asked me if I'd like to go to London for some media and social media training and took us to YouTube, Google, Twitter, Facebook and Instagram headquarters in London. I mean, who gets to do that, right? It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's not something you've done before, I'm guessing. No, definitely not. <laughs> Brilliant. How long were you doing that? How long were you there for? I was there for three days. Um, so, yeah, we had one day of being uh, filmed and um, recorded for fake TV and radio interviews, just like this, so that I could try and be a bit better at doing <laughs> interviews. Um, a public or, or science communication is something I'm really passionate about. Um, I guess mainly because I get to work on a range of really charismatic species. So it's quite easy to tell compelling stories about some of the animals I work on. And, and we, could, we could use all the love we can get for wildlife right now, right? I Absolutely. mean, this, you know, we're in the middle of a sixth extinction crisis. And we need public support for wildlife. And so, you know, heroic animal characters are definitely something I want to talk about. Brilliant. Oh, that's what an experience. Um, well, there's a, there's a range of things I want to cover with you today. Um, to start with, now we spoke to someone you work with um, a few episodes ago in the podcast uh, with Tom Horton, um, our special on uh, tuna. Uh, since we recorded that, uh, there's a particular tag that you guys got back. Um, now, for those of you that aren't aware of what I'm talking about here, um, you guys are out tagging tuna around the British Isles to get an idea of what they do, where they yep. go, etc. If you want to find out more, you can go and listen to Tom's episode. But yeah, what's this story about the, uh, the tag, the special tag? So um, there are some things that wash up on beaches that are just more special than others. Obviously, we should be picking up plastic we see on, on, on beaches and our tags are made of plastic. But um, we attach tags to the outside of bluefin tuna to track their movements. And these tags record temperature, light and depth. So what we can see is as the tuna is released from um, the fishing boat where we catch it, you can see it diving to different depths. You can see the day and the night cycle. And by being able to work out how long the day is, that can tell us a little bit about longitude because as you go further towards the poles, the day gets longer. And if you can see where the sun comes up and the sun goes down, that gives you an idea relative to Greenwich Mean Time, whether you're to the east or to the west, because obviously people in America get up later than us, right? Sunrise is later there. So you can figure out latitude and longitude from light. 
So this tags on this tuna for like eight months and then it comes off early and it starts transmitting its data to us. And we can see it's in, you know, normal British water temperatures, maybe, you know, 10 degrees Celsius. It gets a bit warmer. Um, the light levels tell us that actually it moved south. It went into the Mediterranean and possibly spawned there. Um, and we can see the water gets up to about 20 degrees C or something like this. So then it's coming out of the Med around the Straits of Gibraltar and the temperature, which on, uh, bear in mind, this is on the outside of the tuna, about two metres long, these tuna, they're massive, jumps up to 37 degrees Celsius and the tag goes dark. So there's no more day-night, day-night, but it's still going up and down in the water column. So uh, listeners, have a little think to yourself what you reckon could cause that. And 37 degrees Celsius is the clue. Yeah. Because there's only really, what, what do you reckon? I'm not going to say you're not going to say, say because, well because I because I know you told you know. me earlier <laughs> um, and I didn't get it so I, d I feel it would be um, I mean we'll come back to that at the end oh nice okay I love that yeah right. okay so um, yeah so what I want to talk about next was your work on arctic terns so what have you been doing there so arctic terns are famous at least in animal circles because they make the world's longest distance migration so these are birds that nest in the arctic so they nest in greenland iceland scandinavia a few in the uk as well but in the winter they migrate all the way to antarctica so they cover the entire planet and then go back again the next year to breed so they are amazing birds and years ago, there was a research fellow at, here at the University of Exeter called Dr. Freydis Vigpastotir. And Freydis had said to me for years, let's work on Arctic terns. And I was like, yeah, that'd be amazing. But it wasn't until I saw this grant from the National Geographic Society specifically asking for long distance migration that I was like, oh my goodness, this is it. So we applied, we got the money. And for two years now, we've been traveling to Iceland, catching Arctic terns and putting on them the world's smallest little GPS tracking devices which has been really cool. But um, I didn't really know too much about them until I started working in Iceland, and I love them even more now because this is a bird with one heck of a personality. They are so aggressive. They, <laughs> they literally weigh 100 grams, like a pack of sandwiches. You can hold them in your hand, but they don't care that you might be like 60 times bigger than them. They are, they are going to attack you if you go anywhere near their nests <laughs> and their babies. I mean, we're talking like my collaborators have like got in uh, so that they nest on the ground. Yeah. around in Iceland and we put a trap on the nest so we can catch the bird to attach the tag to it and as you're going out setting the trap all of the birds in the area will just start attacking you and they swoop down and they peck you in the head with their beaks Ooh. and um, one of my collaborators got in the van and she just had like blood streaming down oh, her no. face I mean they're really aggressive and I love them for it because yeah. I'm like you know they're like you go near my babies you see what's going to happen I love <laughs> that about them I think it's great definitely stand their ground yeah. I think I've had I, it was either a turn or skewers. I've been attacked by them at some point. That was I, I saw people wearing um, almost like fascinators made out of yeah. pipe, pipe cleaners on hats, yeah. so they attack the pipe cleaners rather than attacking your yeah. actual. I, I've discovered the ideal thing is a bobble hat with a massive bobble because also so they, they, they always go for the bobble first and you can feel the bobble wobbling and I kind of think it must be a bit more gentle in their little beaks as well but um, and they, yeah, they poo all over you it's, I, just, I, just, I just think it's great an animal with a really strong personality yeah that's some full on field work as well yeah they're really <laughs> cool so we had, a, we had quite um, so we put GPS tags on these arctic terns so so far we have tagged 60 one arctic terns and we went back this summer to go and retrieve the tags from the birds 
And we've had a really um, interesting thing happen to us, which is that in Iceland, people love to eat seabird eggs, and it's not illegal. And we work on a patch of land owned by a farmer whose granddaughter has a real taste for Arctic turn eggs in particular. So when we went back to get our tags back, we found this whole area where we were expecting birds to come and nest that had been there the year before just weren't there and we were like what's this about and we were thinking you know we were like is it you know low site fidelity maybe the birds have died because they're wearing tags you know tags have a have an impact we have to consider but it turned out in the end that this 13 year old girl had basically been in the colony and just ate loads of our nests oh, wow. so my poor PhD student Joe Morton who's here at the University of Exeter Streatham campus um, has had her first chapter of her PhD eaten by a 13 year old so that's a new one that's a different version of the dog ate my homework I guess I know right I know it's the best excuse ever we have a wonderful photo of this girl and we use her in our presentations she comes out and helps us actually she comes out to the field and passes the, the, the leg rings and um, helps us with measurements and stuff so she knows what we're doing so this year we're going out with like a small suitcase of chocolate to be like please eat this and leave the seabirds alone for one year please just let us get our tags back and it will then you can go back to whatever you want to do <laughs> sounds like a very reasonable compromise to me i think so brilliant so what are the future plans with with all of that the reason we're using these GPS tags is because although we know that Arctic terns make it down to Antarctica in the winter, we don't know the places they stop, um, most importantly, to feed, to rest. We don't know how high they fly. So it's quite difficult to say where should we look best to protect them. And they are a species that are declining. About 60% of Arctic tern populations appear to be declining to some extent. So they, they are in need of conservation action. And it's really hard to protect something that travels over half the planet. Um, so we need to work out the priority places. And that's what these GPS tags will hopefully do. And any ideas yet? Or is that just until the eggs stop getting... <laughs> <laughs> disturbed <laughs> by uh... we've had two tags back so far and um, the tags didn't last for the entire year but we could see some key areas on the African coast they were going to um, and particularly lots of areas at sea too so they, they do seem to prefer to stay away from land where possible um, but we're hoping this year to get back the rest of our tags um, and we've also been putting up different types of tags so in addition to GPS tags, we also have a small logger that will wake up every five minutes and sense whether the turn is flying or not. And then it records a one if the bird is flying, a zero if it's not, and then it goes back to sleep. And it means that for the entire year, we can put together a picture of what times of day they're flying and, and how long they fly, because migrating birds can usually fly for many hours at a time sometimes days or weeks at a time without stopping and we don't know what the arctic turn does so we'll be able to answer that question too which is so exciting excellent well from a very small animal to a very big animal um i want to talk a little bit about the work you've been doing with basking sharks now how, how long have you been working with basking sharks I think our basking shark work goes back to 2012, so I guess a scary eight years now we've been working on basking sharks. Wow. Um, yeah, but I, basking sharks are, are obviously so different to an Arctic tern. One, I, I could fit an Arctic tern in the palm of my hand. I could snuggle under the armpit of a basking shark. They're so <laughs> massive, um, and I can't... I, I, basking sharks don't attack me, unlike Arctic terns, so that's great. Um, but they're, they're such cool animals, and they're so huge, and... 
I can't believe we kind of have this, you know, massive, massive sea creature living right in our waters here in the UK. And they're quite easy to see still in Scottish waters. And that's why we've been working specifically on them in, in Scotland as well, off the Isles of Tywee and Cole. Whereabouts are those? They're um, in the Hebrides, so sort of northwest Scotland, really. Um, so we stay on an island called Mull, and then we go out every day on a boat with a massive bag of, uh, of sandwiches and cake and stuff and head out to uh, this, this, this particular bit of land, a particular bit of water between Col and Tyree, where there's almost always some basking sharks trundling around, which you spot because of these towering black dorsal fins that are sticking out the water. It's, they're very cool. Is it right that you can see two different fins when you're out? spotting a basking shark yes and actually the taggable sharks that we're really looking for are ones where you can see three bits of shark so the big old dorsal fin sticking out the yeah. tail fin the caudal fin sticks out as well but when they're really hungry and they're feeding you know like when you get hangry and you're mm -hmm. kind of like i really need to eat now they have their nose out the water as well and so you can kind of see the nose the dorsal fin and the tail and you're like that shark is busy feeding i can go and tag that one so that's what we kind of really look for is these three points on the shark <laughs> that's good to know i didn't didn't know that didn't know about the the third point I'd heard of the uh, <laughs> the, the two fins. Um, so, talk about tagging a basking shark. How does one tag a basking shark and study the ecology of a basking shark? Um, with care, obviously. Um, so we can't catch a basking shark, we can't stop it. So what we have to do to tag them is we have to basically catch up with them um, on a boat and attach the tag using a long pole. I should pause to say here that all of the work that we do is obviously subject to huge amounts of scrutiny, permitting, ethical permissions and review. And nobody in the UK is allowed to tag a shark for scientific purposes without a specific licence from the Home Office and we, we operate under the auspices of that. Um, so, Which is good, actually. We have one of the strictest animal welfare systems in the world. Um, so we think really carefully about what we're doing. What we do is we approach the shark, the tag is on the end of a pole, and we actually insert a small dart into the shark, which will lodge underneath the skin, and, we'll, um, and, and the tag will then stay attached to the shark for a long period. And how long, how long is that long period? Uh, we've had tags stay attached to sharks for well over a year, um, and those have given us a really good insight into where basking sharks go. So we've discovered that they spend a lot more time around the British Isles than I think perhaps we thought they would. We also expected to see some of them cross the Atlantic, but we actually haven't seen that happen. Instead, we've seen sharks moving north and south, so we've seen them travelling all the way to the northern coast of Africa. Um, this is work that was published by Phil Doherty in the course of his PhD here at the University of Exeter. Um, and, they, and some sharks will actually leave Scotland, do a sort of a mega loop of Ireland and come straight back to Scotland again. So they're, they're quite British species in that respect. So what do you think they're doing here? It's definitely the case that Scottish waters or British waters are rich with plankton, which basking sharks are eating. But we suspect, in addition to that, it's quite possible that basking sharks are visiting Scottish waters to breed. And one of the great mysteries of the kind of the marine world is that we actually have no idea where basking sharks breed. It's never been proven. It has been observed once by somebody who wrote uh, an anecdotal account in a magazine. But apart from that, no one, to our knowledge, has ever seen a basking shark breed. So what we're currently working on in Scotland is um, an attempt to deploy video cameras on the sharks, which will be towed along behind the shark. And hopefully if the shark either courts, you know, sort of, hey, 
shark here, um, fancy mum, or breeds will hopefully pick it up on camera. Um, so that's our that's our, our latest mission, which has occupied the last two years of our research, and we're going to be going again this summer. So I guess that means that, obviously you're talking about when you tag the sharks, they're up at the surface feeding. I'm guessing we're expecting that all of this happens at depths that we can't spot the sharks at. I think it's yeah, it's possible that they're just breeding on on, on the seabed. We um, so we we attach these cameras that that are towed along behind the shark on the end of a monofilament tether, so they're kind of filming the shark from a couple of meters above. And one of the sharks we tagged a few years ago, when we'd been following her for a little bit on the camera, we suddenly realised that her her right pectoral fin had a huge bite mark in it, and that's really characteristic of breeding in sharks. So the male tends to bite onto the female, either the side of her body or the pectoral fin, and wraps his body around hers during during mating. So we were like, oh my goodness, she must be female, and she must have also um, had shark sex before, which was quite exciting. There we go, what a finding. <laughs> We were just hoping she might do it again while we still had the cameras out. Because the, the ultimate point of this work is that we're trying to create an evidence base for a big protected area in Scottish waters to say, you know, this is one of the most important places on the planet, actually, that we know of for basking sharks and deserves protection. And so the Scottish government have designed a marine protected area. It's um, gone to public consultation, which closed last autumn. And we're hopeful that this summer the Scottish government's actually going to um, pass a protected area specifically for basking sharks, designed around our data. Um, And that will become even more important if we can prove that it's not only a place they like to be, but also a place that they depend on to breed too. Well, fingers crossed. Would that be the first of its kind? Uh, it would be the first basking shark-specific marine protected area, yes. And it, it's part of a tranche of protected areas, actually, that the Scottish Government um, consulted on last year. So it's also designed to protect minke whales as well. And we're really lucky when we're out working on basking sharks. Sometimes we see minke whales too. A, a few years ago, I was in the back of the boat eating a sandwich, and this minke whale just popped up right next to the boat, and it rolled on its side, and it proper looked at me. You know when you know when someone's looking in your direction mm-hmm. versus at you? Yeah. It looked at me. It was properly like, who are you and what are you doing? And I was kind of there with my mouth open and this sandwich half in it going... <gasps> so it's... Oh, I, I, the, the Inner Hebrides are a really special place to be. You see gannets diving all over the place. There's, there's uh, eagles there. It's a fantastic place, and... And um, if our if our research has a chance of protecting that area for the future, then you know that, that's what we're in this for, right? That that's what that's what little me would have dreamed I could do when I grew up one day, and so it's so exciting. Absolutely, yeah. I can imagine there's many uh, aspiring marine biologists that dreams of that day happening. So that's yeah. what what an experience. That's I incredible. think when I was maybe ten years old, my dad took me on a we went, we went on a family holiday in the Outer Hebrides because there's a, a my dad was in the military and there's an army base there, so we could stay there for free. And I remember seeing a basking shark when I was ten from a dinghy and <laughs> going like, oh, it's big. And uh, so now I work there. You know, it's cool kind of going back to this same place. You know, many years later, I'm getting on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Don't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> Going full circle, that's really, really cool. One other thing I'd like to talk to you about basking sharks um, is breaching. Now, I didn't know they did this. Yeah, so a lot of people are kind of familiar with some of the great whales breaching. So you've probably seen humpback whales breaching on the TV, but basking sharks do this too. And when we're, when we're sitting there in Scottish waters looking for a shark to tag, sometimes if you're lucky to be looking in the right direction, you'll see one of these, you know, these are six to ten metre long sharks leap out the water and make this enormous splash. 
And I don't think that it's particularly clear why, why whales breach, actually, and we're not really clear why basking sharks breach either. But a few years ago, we, we deployed on the basking sharks a tag that records acceleration. So a little bit like a, you know, an activity tracker watch that records your 10,000 steps a day. And we put three of these out on different sharks. And we were actually able to record 67 breaches altogether by these basking sharks. And they do stuff like breach uh, twice a day on average. They breach both during the daytime and the nighttime. They go down to about 20 meters to get out and breach. Um, and we've got a fantastic Masters by Research student, Jessica Rudd, who's here at the University of Exeter. She's been analysing this data, and she's actually been attempting to breach herself in a swimming pool to see if she can understand the biomechanics of breaching. Um, and it's really hard. I gave it a little go. It's very difficult. Anyway, they start at about 20 metres and swim up at a very consistent angle, both between breaches, between sharks. They breach in the same way. Um, and we also found they seem to be right-handed. So most mm. of the breaches, they go over to their right-hand side, um, and they pull about 20 G of force. So we're being pulled down to the earth right now by one unit of gravity. If you started sprinting, you might be going at maybe two units of gravity. A fighter jet pilot is pulling about 9 G in extreme aerodynamic moves. A basking shark is pulling 20 G when it breaches. So really startling statistics that we were able to get from these tags. Wow. I'd love to see that. We often see the basking sharks breach in pairs. So you, you see a breach, and immediately following that, you see another breach. And we always assumed that that was likely to be two different sharks, and perhaps they would breach together as a form of courtship. What our data have shown is that it's possible for the same basking shark to breach twice in about 20 to 30 seconds. And in fact, we have one shark breaches four times in just 47 seconds. So they may be the same shark, and our leading theory at the moment is that these are probably more likely to be um, uh, courtship behaviours. So it's kind of like showing off on the dance floor type of stuff. And basking sharks probably can't see one another breach, but they probably could feel one another breach through their lateral lines, their sensory systems that run down the sides of their bodies. Um, we don't think they're trying to dislodge parasites um, but they could also breach for fun. That's the other thing. Mm. Um, and we, we can't really rule that one out yet. It's kind of a hard one to quantify, I guess. Or yeah, definitely. To, uh, to identify. What fascinating findings there. That's uh, incredible. That's been brilliant, Lucy. Thank you very much for talking to us today. I just wanted to come back to that bit we spoke about earlier in terms of your tuna tag that went dark, uh, yes. went to 37 degrees. Yes. Um, so hopefully the listeners have been having a think and I'm sure some of them might have come up with an answer but so so what was it so the the really big clue there is 37 degrees celsius if you think of a thing that you can think of that that is constantly at 37 degrees celsius hopefully at least some of your listeners are going mammal because that's correct mammals very 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 typically are at 37 degrees celsius and the tag went dark which means we think it was inside a mammal no less and the fact that the tag was also going all the way through the water column it was going up and down suggests that the tag was still in a living animal. So we think this two-metre bluefin tuna was eaten by an orca. Amazing. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And the orca processed the tag for probably two weeks, so the body temperature stayed at 37 degrees C. It stayed dark for two weeks, so we think the tag probably passed all the way through the orca's guts. The orca would have pooped it out. The water temperature drops back down again. You see the day and the night come back in again. It gets light, it gets dark. And then it washed up on a beach in France where a lovely French lady called Birgitte 
found it um, and emailed the tag manufacturer company and then sent it back to us. So we even have this incredible tag that's been on this spectacular journey um, here with us today. Fantastic. And we've got a picture of you with it as well, which I'll include in the show notes so uh, people can have a look at it. And uh, it's quite it's quite a sizable thing. But then I guess tuna and orca are quite large themselves. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much for coming on today, Lucy. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. I really have. Thank you so much to Lucy for joining us to talk about her really fascinating projects. I just thought it was so great to hear how passionate she is about everything that she gets to work on. I'm definitely looking forward to hearing any progress on that exciting basking shark research too. And if you wanted to hear any more about the Bluefin Tuna project, you could check out the recent episode that we did with Tom Horton, where he went into quite a lot more detail about how it all works. I personally really loved Lucy's little game there of what happened to the tuna tag. I hope you all got that one right as well. So if you wanted to find out any more info about anything that Lucy was talking about there, we'll put some useful links for you in the show notes too. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and stay safe and we'll hopefully see you in the next episode.